This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, a controversial election and a controversial prisoner both have our attention. We'll revisit the case of Alan Gross imprisoned in Cuba and will analyze the controversial results of the presidential elections in Honduras. But first, Megan Eckhamel is here with the results of that election and the rest of our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Violence and controversy after presidential elections in Honduras. Electoral authorities say Juan Orlando Hernandez, the former president of the Honduran Congress, won with 37% of the vote. However, at least five people were killed in violence connected to the voting, and the runner-up Libre Party called the results fraudulent. The United States, the European Union, and the Organization of American States all certified the election as free and fair, but independent Canadian observers urged the Canadian government to reject the results, saying the voting was tainted by fraud. In Washington, D.C., Eric Olson of the Wilson Center commented as part of a panel analyzing the election sponsored by the Inter-American Dialogue. I'm not suggesting here that there was uh, fraud, uh, systemic fraud that changed the the outcome, but there are some serious issues that need to be addressed going forward. One of them is the professionalization of the electoral tribunal. The current president of Honduras declared Hernandez the winner before the official results were announced. The online hacker group Anonymous broke into the Honduran Electoral Systems computer database and posted results online that showed many uncounted ballots for the Libre Party. Rioting erupted at the country's largest university in support of Ziomara Castro de Zelaya, the Libre candidate who took 29% of the vote. Police used tear gas and clubs to control the rioting students and supporters of Castro. Castro also complained of voting irregularities that may have tipped the election against her. We'll have more on the fallout from the elections later in the program. Another massive blackout rolls across Venezuela and shuts down Caracas and other cities. The outage disrupted public transportation and stranded commuters. President Nicolas Maduro blames opposing parties for causing the blackout. Some Venezuelans are calling for him to resign. The blackout is the second major outage in Venezuela this year. Power rationing and utility failures have led to previous blackouts. Colombian President Juan Manuel Santos visited the White House and talked with President Barack Obama about the two countries' future together. President Obama showed his support for the ongoing peace talks with the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, the FARC rebels. Obama and Santos talked about bolstering their partnership in commerce, energy access, regional infrastructure, and economic integration. Authorities in Mexico are looking for two hijackers with radiation sickness. The men hijacked a truck transporting dangerous Cobalt-60, a radioactive substance used in medical treatments. Authorities found the abandoned truck and later a container that held the radioactive substance, 
the hijackers took the truck at gunpoint at a gas station outside Mexico City. Mexican authorities say the men likely only have three days to live after such radiation exposure. For Latin Pulse, I'm Megan Ackhamel. Thanks, Megan. As we just heard, election officials in Honduras are now calling Juan Orlando Hernandez the president-elect. Meanwhile, Xiomara Castro de Zelaya of the Libre Party is leading protests against the election results. Some of those protests have been met with violence. Adriana Beltran of the Washington Office on Latin America, WOLA, joins us again via Skype to discuss the precarious political situation in Honduras. Here are excerpts from our discussion. The uh, Electoral Tribunal uh, a few days ago uh, announced that Juan Orlando Hernandez was the winner um, of the of the Honduran elections. Uh, there were a number of issues that... Um, you know, we that we heard from a number of our of our colleagues and and different sources in Honduras. I think there was a lot of um, you know questions surrounding these elections and the importance of the elections, particularly because for the first time in Honduran history, um, it wasn't a contest between the two traditional parties, but you had the emergence of of two other parties, the Libre Party and then um, the Anti Corruption Party. Um, and what that meant, particularly, um, you know, following the 2009 coup, I would say that unfortunately there were a number of issues that um, occurred during the elections that, uh, you know, raised questions about uh, about the elections themselves. Um, I think um, logistically, you know, there weren't that many issues that uh, we heard about. So things, you know. Um, logistically, we're running pretty smoothly in terms of the opening of the polls on time, um, having all the materials ready, and so forth. Um, that said, you know, a number of uh, different missions, um, mostly you know, civil society uh, organizations that were monitoring the elections, um, have raised a number of concerns um, of uh, things that they saw the day of the elections, from uh, you know, people uh, being denied the right to vote. Um, to concerns about particularly um, the National Party offering discount cards outside of the polling centers. Um, this was an issue that, uh, from what we were able to see, uh, only was only happening um, with regards to the National Party and not to the not the case for the other parties. Um, and the National Party is the party that ended up winning. Right, right. And again, you know, it's not. Um, it's it's hard to tell. You know how how. To what extent or to what level you saw these problems throughout the country, uh, but I think it does raise a lot of concerns, particularly because of the climate around the elections. Um, you know, and in, in you know, in a in a situation post coup, so what the elections meant, um, and the fact that you know the the tri- tribunal needed to really focus on how to ensure that they were free and fair and that there were no issues uh, raised surrounding the elections. Um, you know, the, the Libre Party and the Anti-Corruption Party have uh, basically questioned um, the results of the presidential elections um, and saying that they have not, you know, uh, accepted those results um, and that they were asking uh, for, a, for a recount. Um, last, we have uh, heard the tribunal has accepted uh, doing some kind of recount, although we're trying to gather more detail as to what um, this means. The Libre Party has said that as much as 30% of the vote may have been tainted with the, these votes from people who are dead or, or who are not registered correctly. And, and then there was the case of, of Anonymous, the hacking group, coming in and 
posting material online that said as much as 20% of the Libre vote may not have been accounted. Do you have any reaction to either of those right. particular allegations? There, there were questions around 20%. So there were questions about, um, you know, a certain percentage of the, of the tallies or the actas um, that uh, had not been um, counted um, by the tribunal and, um, you know, Libre and other parties raised questions about not knowing or ha not having received information as to why those votes were, were not being included in the count. Two also questions about, um, you know, Libre um, stating that, you know, their records show that do not compare to the, to the um, information or the counting that the tribunal was, was putting forth. So those are the questions, you know, that are still, that are still uh, remain. Um, and, you know, one of the reasons why Libre has um, asked for a, for a recount um, of the tallies and, um, and the vote. Um, you know, and we're trying again to gather more information. I think these are issues that, that need to be answered and that the tribunal needs to, um, to respond to and address um, right away. Now, we've seen the international community react with the United States, European Union, Organization of American States have all backed what the electoral tribunal has said and have said that this was a democratic process and time to move on. Well, you know, again, uh, I think it's important for the, you know, for the tribunal um, to address these issues, particularly because you had a, a significant part of the population that was supporting Libre that was very disgruntled, particularly after, you know, what happened during the coup. So I think it's important um, that the tribunal address the questions that, that were raised during the elections, um, particularly with regards, you know, to recounting of the, of the votes, how that's going to happen, the questions that Libre and the anti-corruption party have raised with regards to the tallies, um, you know, to the, uh, how they're going to address issues of people that were not um, given the right to exercise um, their vote. Um, you know, and again, looking forward, how they're going to address other issues that I think are important, um, including, you know, the issue of campaign financing, which is a huge problem, um, you know, to how to have uh, a political leadership of the um, electoral tribunal and the issue of, of a second round. We have talked about campaign finance on this program before. I want to get back to what you said about the discount cards. This is a technique to get voters to sway voters that we saw last year used in the Mexican elections, and those allegations were brought forward to no effect by opposition parties in, in Mexico. And, and now we see the same thing turning up in the Honduran elections. Given all these irregularities, would you consider this to be a tainted or fixed election? Well, I think that, you know, there, there are a number of questions. I think the last um, we have heard is that the tribunal did accept to do a recount. I have not received enough detail as to, you know, what that means. What challenges do you see ahead for this new government? Uh, it's, it's still the national party running the country. So what challenges does Juan Orlando Hernandez have when he becomes uh, a president next year? I think one of the, you know, the big issues... Um, is security. Um, again, you know, we, Honduras is facing um, extremely high levels of violence. It is a country um, with the highest homicide rate globally. Um, and this is extremely worrisome for a country that, you know, is not even um, in, in a war torn, torn region. Um, and, you know, if you look nationally, um, the homicide rate, it's probably going to be, even if it um, decreases. Uh, minimally is going to be over um, 80 per 100,000 
inhabitants. Um, if you look more locally, there are departments that are facing, you know, extremely, extremely high levels of violence over, you know, rates over 100 per uh, 100,000 uh, people. Um, I think it's very worrisome because what we have seen um, to date um, is, uh, you know, Juan Orlando um, and his party more um, interested in prioritizing, again, more repressive tactics. Uh, Juan Orlando, we have to remember, was the uh, champion of the military police that have been, you know, deployed to the streets. Um, he had been a champion of, you know, sending the military to address um, the, the security situation uh, time and time again. Um, so that does raise concerns about what the focus of, of his citizen security strategy is going to be. Um, Didn't he run on the, on the particular campaign of putting a member of the security forces um, of the military on every street corner in the country? Yes, um, yes, and he, you know, it's 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 been part of part of his strategy. And again, he was, you know, a few months before the election, um, the champion of you know this new body, the military police. Because this brings up issues of justice and the rule of law. What do these elections say about that particular area of governance in Honduras? You know, I think, you know, there are big issues. Last um, time I was on the program, we were talking about, you know, the elections of the Attorney General. And unfortunately, despite efforts to um, push for a, for a transparent and accountable process, um, that unfortunately did not happen. Given what we've seen, uh, Juan Orlando's priorities to be, it does raise concerns about to what extent the new administration is going to focus on a comprehensive strategy, on a strategy that addresses the um, much-needed reforms that need to happen to strengthen the rule of law in the country. And I think that another key um, challenge um, is going to be, um, it, particularly when you look at the new makeup of the Congress, is the legitimacy of the government. Um, because, you know, there is only uh, one round um, in Honduras um, uh, president uh, during the elections, it means that you have a government that effectively um, won with 35% uh, of the vote. So that raises questions of, of, you know, to what extent they're going to have uh, sound legitimacy. The other is if you look at the makeup of a Congress, for the first time you don't have, you know, the ruling parties, um, a ruling party controlling the majority. So that is going to, you know, bring up issues as to how um, the different forces are going to align, what kind of uh, negotiation is going to take place within the Congress. There's been some political conjecture that if the two traditional parties, the National Party and the Liberal Party, vote together, then they will have enough to run the country. And those are the two parties that seem to be behind the coup. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the makeup, um, you know, so far so uh, you do have, you know, the Nationals with 48 seats and, and um, the Liberals with 25. Um, so, you know, there, there, ha there are questions, you know, are, are these two parties going to um, negotiate and act as a bloc? Um, you know, how the other parties are going to, you know, will Libre and the new anti-corruption party work together? I mean, there, you know, there are a lot of questions that, that um, you know, we'll need to look at very closely. Thank you so much. Adriana Beltran of the Washington Office on Latin America, WOLA our guest on Latin Pulse, joining us via Skype. Thank you. Coming up, the case of Alan Gross and what it means for U.S. relations with Cuba. Stay with us. This planet we call Earth 
abundant with new food, new cures, new life. An amazing place. Please don't let it vanish without a trace. Call for your free World Wildlife Fund Action Kit with 10 simple things you can do to help leave our children a living planet. Call 1-800-C-A-L-L-W-W-F. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. This week, Alan Gross passed the four-year milestone for his incarceration in Cuba. Gross was a contractor for the U.S. Agency for International Development, or USAID. He was working on installations of Internet equipment for Cuba's Jewish community. Cuban officials said that what he was doing constituted espionage, and a Cuban court convicted him. We've interviewed his wife, Judy, on this program before. This year, we asked Bill Leogrand of American University to catch us up on the case. Leogrand is the co-editor of the Contemporary Cuba Reader. We spoke to him earlier this week. Alan Gross's incarceration in Cuba has certainly been the proximate problem in moving forward on a range of issues of mutual interest between Cuba and the United States. After Mr. Gross was arrested and convicted and sentenced in Cuba, the Obama administration said that there couldn't be any forward movement in relations until he was released unconditionally. Now, that seems to have changed uh, recently. In the second administration, uh, the United States was willing to resume bilateral discussions around some issues of mutual interest, including migration talks, Coast Guard talks about search and rescue, postal exchange, and so on. And now just recently, there seems to be some movement on the Gross case itself. Well, I think Gross made an appeal to the president to say, please, please start negotiating on this. He did. There are a number of things that have been happening. Uh, Alan Gross himself wrote the president a letter saying that he felt he had been abandoned by his country, that he was in Cuba implementing a USAID program and so working in effect on behalf of his government. And he didn't feel that uh, the United States had done enough to get him out. So he really appealed to the president to, to move ahead. At the same time, uh, 66 members of the United States Senate wrote a letter to the president urging him to take the initiative to launch negotiations with Cuba to try to obtain Gross's release. Uh, And just yesterday in a press conference, Secretary Kerry said that there were discussions quietly going on behind the scenes with Cuba about the Gross case. So we seem to be at a point where there's some forward movement. Secretary Kerry has had some um, great success recently in other parts of the world. Uh, he, he gave a speech at the Organization of American States lately that, that most people did not give a good review to. Was, was there any preview there that there's going to be a change in, in um, relations between the two countries? Well, it depends on how you read that speech. Uh, it, it was literally... a repetition of what U.S. policy has been ever since Obama became president. That is to say, uh, Cuba needs to change before there can be a significant improvement in U.S.-Cuban relations. But the language was um, cautious and uh, did express a desire on the part of the United States to see relations improve. It also has to be read in the context of a private meeting that the president had in Miami with some uh, funders in which he was quite explicit saying that the old policy wasn't working, 
that the United States needed to find some new, innovative, creative ways to engage with Cuba. I think the president recognizes that things in Cuba are changing very fast and that if the United States doesn't engage in some fashion, we'll just be left on the sidelines and have no influence over what's happening there. Let's talk about those reforms in, in, in a little bit. But the one thing that is, may also be holding up these relations is if there's a mere image to the Alan Gross case, it's the Cuban Five case. Do we see that changing? Is that something that could be put on the table? Well, in response to uh, Secretary Kerry's comments yesterday, the Cuban Foreign Ministry released a statement in which it made exactly that point. Uh, they said that they were willing to talk about Alan Gross, uh, they were willing to take into account the humanitarian concerns about his health, but they wanted a reciprocal discussion, negotiation, that took into account their humanitarian concerns about the Cuban Five, that is to say, uh, now four Cuban intelligence officers uh, in prison in the United States. The fifth one was paroled and has gone, gone back to Cuba. Uh, another one will be eligible for parole in February, and the expectation is that he too will be sent back to Cuba. Uh, I think that if there's going to be a productive discussion about the case of Alan Gross, it has to involve the Cuban Five to some degree. Uh, exactly what the modality of exchange might be is uncertain. But the United States has negotiated with Cuba in the past about prisoner exchanges uh, successfully. So there is at least a precedent for that. We have unfortunately given short shrift to the Cuban Five or Cuban Four case in the past. And many people um, tend to characterize it in, in different ways. Um, some as, as a straight-up spy case, and others see it as... Um, members of Cuban intelligence who actually informed about terrorist organizations here in the United States. Um, how do you see that case, and, and what can be done about it? Well, there's no question that it was a Cuban intelligence agency network of spies. They've acknowledged that. Uh, their claim is that their principal mission was spying on Cuban-American exile organizations engaged in terrorist attacks inside Cuba. Uh, they were sent to the United States at a time when uh, Cuban exile organizations were setting off bombs in hotels, uh, tourist hotels, in Havana and killed an Italian tourist in, in one of those attacks. At the same time, they were also spying on uh, U.S. military installations in, in South Florida. But the Cuban argument is that they were engaged in, an, in a counterterrorism uh, uh, operation uh, at a time when Cuba and the United States were actually exchanging information to prevent international terrorist attacks. And so the Cubans found it especially galling that uh, these agents were arrested and sentenced to extremely long terms in prison. Doesn't this tacitly mean that the United States does support Cuban exiles operating in, in taking on terrorist um, operations inside Cuba? Well, I wouldn't go that far. I think there's no question historically the United States not only supported Cuban exile terrorist attacks on Cuba, it organized them. But that really stopped a, a number of years ago. The problem has been that there are certain agencies in the United States government that employed these people, particularly the Central Intelligence Agency, that has not been eager to see them brought to justice. And so you have the irony of, of the United States fighting a global war against terrorism and yet acknowledged 
Cuban-American terrorists are free walking the streets in Miami, including one who blew up a civilian airliner, killing 73 people in 1976. And can you give us a few more details about that case? Well, that was uh, the case of uh, Posada Carriles, uh, who had been employed by the Central Intelligence Agency as a demolitions expert during the paramilitary war against Cuba in the 1960s. Um, and when the CIA stopped supporting those operations, he simply continued them on his own, along with a number of his collaborators. Uh, I think there's, there's no question that he was, the, as they say, the intellectual author, the organizer of the attack on the Cubana uh, uh, passenger airline flight that was blown up in 1976. And he's acknowledged that he was behind the hotel bombings uh, that were going on in the late 1990s. Doesn't this also affect uh, relations with Venezuela? Um, the Venezuelans would like Posada Carriles um, brought to justice too, do they not? Yes. Uh, Posada Carriles was actually living in Venezuela at the time of that bombing, and it was organized from Venezuela. And so the Venezuelan government uh, for a time had him imprisoned there. And Venezuela now has a request to extradite him, but the United States has not been willing to, uh, to do that. You mentioned before the reforms that seem to be moving forward. We recently featured a commentary on this program that, that called the reforms half-hearted and that the Cuban government was um, making a lot of noise with them but wasn't really following through in a, in a positive way. How would you characterize the way that the reforms are going? I think the reforms are very serious. Um, they are moving ahead at a, uh, a moderate and deliberate speed but there no, there's no question that they are, are making fundamental changes in the way the economies are organized. Uh, for one thing, they've acknowledged now that there will be a private sector. They project that it will be 40% of the economy and that it's an essential and dynamic element for economic growth. Just recently, the Cuban government announced that its interests section here in Washington, its diplomatic representation here in Washington, would no longer be providing consular services. That is to say, they won't be processing visas for people who want to travel to Cuba. Uh, this is a very serious problem because in the past year, about half a million U.S. residents and citizens traveled to Cuba. About 400,000 of those are Cuban Americans, um, but the rest are ordinary citizens going on educational travel. Uh, that will be severely constrained if consular services are not restored. And the reason that they were cut off is because no U.S. bank would handle Cuban accounts in the United States. The reason for that is because of the very tough sanctions that are applied to Cuba uh, because it's listed on the State Department's list of terrorist-supporting countries. We have not talked on this program about the leadership changes that started unfolding this summer in Cuba. Uh, Raul Castro has, has said that he is on a limited time uh, running the country. And so um, who's coming next? Well, the person who is now first vice president, uh, Miguel Diaz-Canel, um, was not just a generation, probably two generations younger, actually, than, than uh, Fidel and Raul Castro, who were in their 80s. He is someone with uh, a long record of work in the education sector. He's uh, taught at university. Um, but his, his main administrative work has been through the Communist Party. He's risen through the Communist Party. He was first secretary of two provinces before he was put on or brought to Havana to be the Minister of Education. So are we headed to an era of Cuban technocrats? 
I think we're headed to an era of Cuban pragmatists, for certain. Um, technocrats in the sense that the government now is paying a lot closer attention to uh, basic economic principles, which in some cases it ignored and, and hoped, as Raul Castro himself has said, uh, they sometimes acted as if one plus one equaled three. And it doesn't. It only equals two. And you can only consume as much as, as you produce. Thank you, Bill Leo Grand of American University and the co-editor of A Contemporary Cuba Reader, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thanks so much, Bill. Thank you. And now a footnote to that interview. Alan Gross's family sued the federal government and the contracting firm, saying Gross was unprepared for such a sensitive mission in Cuba. Gross's family settled with the contracting firm Development Alternatives of Bethesda, Maryland. A federal judge threw out the suit against the U.S. government, but that ruling is on appeal. Latin Pulse is available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Musica Q. You can also find us inside the Brazilian online game, Mini Mundos. If you'd like to comment on this program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, dot org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse also all one word. That's www.linktv.org forward slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, associate producer Megan Eckhamel and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros, gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University's School of Communication and with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2013, Las Rocas Productions.